Broadcasting from the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado, it's time for Kick Set with USA Swimming, bringing you interviews with athletes, coaches, and experts from age group swimming to the national and Olympic teams. Hello, and welcome to Kick Set. I am your host, Dan McCarthy. Our guest today is Bruce Gemmel. Um, I've had the benefit of knowing Bruce for a number of years now, and all the success that he's had couldn't have gone to a, a nicer and a more honest guy. Bruce, of course, is a coach with uh, Nation's Capital, and he was kind enough at the Tier Pro Swim Series in Greensboro to sit down and, and give me some time uh, to talk about a number of things. Um, I, I wanted to talk to Bruce a little bit about how he you know, as a graduate of the University of Michigan, he was an engineer and inventor, how he transitioned from that to a full-time swim coach. Uh, Bruce has had a lot of success coaching athletes in general, and he has had some success coaching distance athletes as well. So I wanted to get his impressions on some of our distance athletes from the past, how our distance athletes look now, and maybe what the future holds for distance athletes in the United States. Um, and then at the end of the podcast, we get the opportunity to dive into Bruce's coaching philosophy and his ideas, some of the sets that he likes to do. And um, as a bonus, you'll get to find out why Bruce's favorite color is red. Let's listen. Bruce, how are you doing today? We're doing great. Thanks, Dan. All right. Uh, I would like to jump it right into it because there's a bunch of stuff that I want to cover today. Um, I want to touch on your background a little bit. You and I are going to have a chance to talk about distance swimming in the United States. And if we have time, I know everybody would like to hear about training. Okay. Got it. Ready right. to go. All right. So after you finished your degree at the University of Michigan, you were done swimming. You didn't go right into coaching, did you? No. Yes and no. I, I thought I might want to go into coaching. And I approached John Urbanchek, who was the Michigan coach at the time, about going into coaching. And uh, those of you who know John can hear him saying it. He yelled at me for wanting to go into coaching. He said, don't you dare go into coaching. Gave me all the reasons not to and told me to, to go into a professional career as an engineer and make lots of money and give it back to the <laughs> University of Michigan. So with my respect for John, I, I followed his wisdom and headed off into a, an engineering career for uh, several years. Uh, and I know you're going to be modest about this, but pretty successful engineering career. Uh, it, it was an engineering career that um, I like to say it, uh, it, it bought the house, uh, meaning I guess I made enough money to buy a house in it. And um, I, I enjoyed doing it at, at a certain level, but never did I find myself really wanting to get away from the pool. Okay. Last year, we had a conversation about coach education in the United States, and we talked a lot about how you developed as a person, as a businessman, as an inventor, as a educator, when you were not in coaching. Can you help me drill down? What skills do you think being an engineer helped make you successful as a coach? Um, I think not only as an engineer, which yes, it's helpful and organizationally it's important and financially it's important, but the, the path I had in engineering, I was in product development and everybody likes to think things are developed in a straightforward fashion, but you learn quickly from a product development side of things that there are lots of twists and turns and setbacks and things that you need to overcome and unexpected things, and it takes a long time. 
And I think when I look at, at developing swimmers, a lot of that, that same thing applies. You have a, a vision at the end that you want to get to, and you, you might think that it's going to be a straight path to get from point A to point B, but having had the engineering experience, I know that there's going to be twists and turns and setbacks and things that you never thought of, and it's going to take a while. And, and some of the product development work I did was eight or ten years long with tens or hundred million dollar budgets. And um, while I don't have the same budget to develop swimmers, um, I think if you can look at it in the big picture with multiple years or multiple quads in mind, it's very helpful. I think that's really strong because I would argue that makes you very unique, especially in today's youth sports culture where, you know, today's results are the most important thing. Have you found it challenging to sit down with parents, uh, even coaches on your staff, athletes, and talk to them about the long game? Uh, that's a great question. Um, sometimes I probably don't do as good a job as I need to do communicating to them what my vision is in, in the long game. And, and you're right with the, the feeling or the wants for immediate gratification or immediate satisfaction, immediate results. I probably do need to do a better job because I, I have a picture in mind and sometimes the picture ends up looking close to what I thought it was going to be and sometimes the end picture looks nothing like I thought it was going to be. But I, I'm always working several years down the road when I'm working with, and I have the, the luxury of working with uh, developing athletes, high school age athletes, and that's sort of prime time for really taking a look at some of their long-term needs, goals, and things we're going to run into along the way. I would argue, having known you for a number of years now, even when you were at Delaware, that you never ever set out to become uh, hyper-involved in the dry side of USA Swimming, uh, specifically like the board of directors and various committees. And now you find yourself just in that place. Was that intentional or did it just happen? It was certainly not intentional. I think the phrase people like to use these days is it was organic. Mm. Um, I saw areas that I thought I could contribute in, and I think in some cases other people saw areas that they thought I could contribute in. And certainly as I've, I've headed down that path a little bit, I hope I'm contributing in ways that are helpful and ways that, that people thought that I could. It's fantastic to have coaches, especially uh, coaches that have done well and have been around for a number of years, become a, a member of the board of directors. Is that what you're bringing to the table, or is it the way you look at problems? You know, I was I was asked to be on the board of directors because I was had become chair of the national team steering. So I think that one of my responsibilities is to bring the national team's point of view, problem solving, concerns, to the board of directors level. And at the same time, I've also been involved in, in lots of other levels of swimming all along the way. So I firmly believe, and I think most people do, that a, a strong national team is the result of a strong grassroots program, a strong USA Swimming Foundation, a strong community presence. And I think the national team contributes to those areas also. So it's not a, it's not a selfish uh, serving the national team point of view, but all of those things help each other. And that's what makes USA Swimming, USA Swimming. Your family, is I would almost say national team, USA Swimming national team, and the Gemmel family uh, over the last couple of years have kind of become interconnected. Uh, Andrew was a very accomplished swimmer and has now moved on to have a voice 
on the dry side. I know he serves on a, a, a couple committees within USA Swimming and um, has has let his feelings be known on a number of issues. Um, did he set off to get involved like that or did that just happen? I don't think he set off to get involved either. Um, he was he was in the trenches and he was in the trenches for a long time. Um, I don't know how many people recognize. I think he was a 10 year national team athlete and I, that's probably twice the average, if not more. Mm. So in, in 10 years of being on the national team, he got a lot of looks at a lot of things and a lot of experience and uh, probably picked up a little bit of it around the household too, just hearing me talk about things and um, bringing that, that point of view to all levels of swimming from an athlete, from a relatively current athlete, is only makes us stronger. Right. Your daughter, is she involved at the LSC level? My daughter is not involved in the LSC level. Um, she's being a 14-year-old age group swimmer right now and doing all the good things and dumb things and mistakes <laughs> that we hope all of our 14-year-olds can, can do and learn from. You dare to catch her. Yes. <laughs> all right. Um, so you have had the advantage of being able to come and look at swimming from a unique perspective, I'll, I'll argue, uh, because of your engineering background, then having the opportunity to try out some ideas at Delaware, then come to nation's capital and have an opportunity to work with, a, you have a lot of support, you have some fantastic athletes, you have arguably the greatest female swimmer of all time, you got the chance to coach her, Katie Ledecky, um, so when I ask you your opinion on certain topics, it's not because you just happen to be here. It's because I sought you out because of your background and your analytical mind. That being said, this summer, you and Russell Mark, who's been on the podcast before, check back a few episodes ago, <laughs> you guys started a conversation about distance swimming in the U.S., okay? And I'm going to kind of pass it off to you. First of all, when we say distance swimming in the United in the United States, what events are we talking about? I think you can sort of self-define that. Um, I, I think some people would argue that distance swimming starts at 200, and I, I think there's there's value to agreeing to that line of thinking. Um, I think probably other people would think those distance swimming starts with the 5K in open water, and there are similarities in all of those. I think when, when Russell and I, one of the stats that Russell provided to me, and I'm going to get it wrong, so somebody will have to go check it, 25% um, of the medals at the Olympic level are, are distance events. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that. Um, so I don't know what he was including when he said that, but if you include the open water, the mile, the addition of the women's mile, the men's 800, the 400 free, the 400 IMs, I bet you don't even have to get down to the, the 200 level to say 25% of the medals are, are distance events Yeah, using that definition. All right. Um, was your conversation one of concern or was it uh, talking about distance swimming? I think my conversation was originally one of observation. And then when Russell, as he's prone to do and is so good at, took the time to go look at the facts behind some of our distance swimming performance over the last larger number of years than both of us thought. I think the the results spoke for themselves that it's an area where USA Swimming has an opportunity to do better and can do better. 
Um, whenever we talk about an area to do better, if we drill down a little bit more, are we talking about the men's side or the women's side or both? I think you can talk about both. Um, certainly the women's side has been stronger over the last three or four quads. Um, but that does not mean that there's not um, opportunities there also. Eventually our superstar or superstars in, uh, in those events, uh, some of them going on, well, Haley Anderson already on her third Olympics, Katie with hopefully her third Olympics, um, you know, eventually they're going to move on and we need to make sure we're positioned to continue that success. Okay. Um, whenever we're talking about perception and the events, you know, we always, we almost don't even think about an event like the men's 100 backstroke or the men's 200 backstroke because it seems as if for the last 100 years, every time somebody retires, two, it's like a hydra, two pop up to take their place and it's super competitive. Um, is the, is the concern maybe is that we wish our distance events were as successful as an event like the 100 backstroke? I think that's true. And I think the other analogy you can draw is that a couple of years ago, we looked at Butterfly, and I think it was Russell or Russell and yourself pointed out that Michael and Dana, I think, were our only Olympic medalists over the last eight years or 12 years or something like that. So while we were winning medals in those events, there was not the, the depth that certainly is the strength of USA Swimming. And I think the same thing could apply for the, the distance events that you know, we need to, need to shore those up. While the backstroke has been particularly strong over the years, I don't know. That's a whole, probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, because it's interesting when you look at, and I, I, I took some time and looked at the men's Olympic results from the last, back to 2004, and every single year we've managed to get a medal from the 400 the, or the 1500 freestyle for the men. Um, and, you know, we have names in there like, you know, Connor Yeager and Peter Vandekay, uh, Larson, Cleet Keller, and I think four out of five of those medals were American records. So our guys that get there do quite well, okay? But we would probably like a lot more. Yeah, and, and I know that we, we love to look at Olympic medals, and that's the pinnacle of the sport, and, and that's a, a great measuring stick at one level. If you start looking at, at world championships, I, I think that the, the issue becomes a little bit more apparent. The, the crystallizing moment for me this past summer was at our World Junior Championships in uh, Budapest with our 17 or 18 and under athletes and the young man swimming the 400 free from Carmel, and I forget Jake's last name, but anyway, he got fourth in the 400 free, which is disappointing not to, make a not to win a medal, so that's disappointing itself. And then that was pointed out to me that that was the second fastest American for the entire summer. So when we're not even meddling at the world junior level in an event where it's our second fastest overall American, and, and that was one of the things that said, all right, we need to, to peel a couple layers back here and see what, try and figure out what's really going on. Okay. Um, so eventually this conversation turned into, okay, let's dig down into the numbers, but let's try and uh, let's make a challenge out of it. Let's take advantage of opportunities because we do have more resources than maybe the rest of the world combined whenever it comes to attacking a problem. So what is the problem? The million dollar question. Um, you chose the word that there's a problem. Okay. Um, 
Maybe I'm going to play semantics and say maybe it's not a problem. I think the question is why are we not seeing the results on the international level that has been a yardstick and measuring stick for USA Swimming for years. Um, maybe I'm just avoiding answering your question by saying that. I think you can, you can peel it back on, on so many different levels. And, and just like I said, the strength of USA Swimming is, is all of the, the facets that are involved in USA Swimming and the, the national team is just the, you know, the one component at the top. I think the same thing can be said about Olympic medals. Um, there are multiple contributing factors all the way through and including perhaps the, the grassroots programs. Okay. Um, let me go through a couple levels of USA Swimming or how about American Swimming and, and kind of let's break those down and see how they look. So. 10 and under development, I don't know if we ever say that there's distance swimming per se involved in 10 and under swimming, um, but are we setting the table for it to be introduced future? You know, I don't, I don't know that you're setting the table for distance swimming. Back to our earlier conversation, I think in 10 and unders, you can set the table for long-term view, delayed gratification, not always winning the race the first few times we try it onto the subject of maybe the biggest kid and the fastest kid isn't really the one that's that's coming along the best and i think that can start at the 10 and under level educating the athletes and the parents and the coaches and everyone in the organizations that working with them at that level okay i think that's bright i think that's a good idea so now we have let's we're going to have a, a pretend athlete here and that athlete is now um, pre-high school, a middle school-aged kid, and now they, they are at a point in their career where they have an opportunity to try any event that is offered, including open water. Um, so if I would carry on your, your initial thought, you, so this would be more curiosity exploratory phase of kind of fitting what their niche is? Yeah, and I, I think in, in that age, and I don't know for sure whether you're sort of thinking the 11-year-old or the 15-year-old when you say that, but that's a great window for them to embrace um, the area of, and we, as soon as we say distance swimming, people think, oh, I've got to train really far and I've got to go really slow <laughs> and the events are going to be boring and I'm not going to get to be on a relay. And, and that's the, the, the image that we need to break because I'm not sure any of those are true, especially anymore. We have differences across the country between like there's some areas of the country where high school swimming is the most important thing. We have some areas of the country where it hardly exists, okay? Um, once an athlete that shows some aptitude for distance gets to the high school years, is it, is it dependent upon those coaches to keep it going? Um, is it a conversation between club coaches and high school coaches that while the 500 might be the high school distance event, this kid might be really good at the 1500 and we need to find a way to work around that. Is this, is this one of the opportunities? That is an opportunity and, and you're in, have to be in, in sales at that level. <laughs> I mean, you, you do. And, and just like, and I'm sure we're going to touch on it next at the college level, at the high school level, there are, are three relays and there's five more events. I think that are a hundred and less. 
So those, those athletes get rewarded, whether it's by scoring points or whether winning medals or whether it's by getting the newspaper article. Mm-hmm. And, and the athlete who is the distance athlete who really is only going to 500, and I'm, you know, a 500 short course isn't really much more than a 200 long course. Somebody's going to do the math and say, Bruce, you're lying. <laughs> but from, a, from, a, from, a, from a attacking, from a preparation standpoint, I think it's true. Um, you know, that, that 500 athlete, uh, that, you know, that's, that's where they, they max out at in the high school level. Mm-hmm. So is that compounded, say, for a male distance athlete heading into college? Absolutely. And, and the male, um, the male, not the male, the college system is built on sprinting. It's built on relays. That's where coaching resources go. That's where money, scholarship resources go. Um, that's where, you know, the, all the hidden resources go, not all, but a a large part of them. And if, if I'm running a college program and I'm responsible for scoring points and winning meets and scoring at NCAAs or conference meet, sure. That's, that's where the resources have to go. And it's hard to, to get away from that. Um, I'm going to irresponsibly throw around an idea that I saw on paper and might've talked with some people about, um, just anybody listening, this is not an official idea, but it's one that's been thrown out there. What about a resident distance team at Colorado Springs where they get a college scholarship to go to college locally? You know, I think that you're onto something. I think there is extreme value in one of the weaknesses, extreme value in having like-minded people training with like-minded people. And I think that's a great, great value there. However, clearly over the years, we have learned that the real, real, real strength of distance, not just of USA Swimming, is um, all the unique ways and all the different ways that people go about things. Yes. So the thinking that one way of doing it, and we're going to put our best athletes in this environment, and this is, quote, unquote, all they're going to be exposed to, I think is, is sort of faulty thinking. Uh, one of our most recent best distance swimmers, Connor Yeager, he went into college as a 200 flyer, and I haven't ever really sat down and talked with Connor at length, but I think uh, after a year or two, he realized that he wasn't going to be able to be at the elite level in the 200 fly, and somebody, probably Josh White at, at Michigan, looked at Connor and said, hey, I thought you might be successful in the mile. Right. So I, I think that uh, limiting our population or limiting the athletes that are exposed to it or what they're exposed to, I think, is not taking advantage of our strengths. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, on the, uh, the, the theme of irresponsible ideas, so I just decided for the sake of this podcast that along with your new position in the board of directors, you've been named the distance czar of USA Swimming. So anything you say goes. What three things would you institute nationwide? Wow. Um, and in fairness to Danny, gave me some of these questions ahead of time, <laughs> and I still don't have a good answer. You know, I think some of it is, is just information, and, and information, everything from the um, 25% of our events are distance events, 25% of the Olympic level. So 25% of the medals are going to distance athletes. It's not just one event or one, one or two events anymore. So that's an education standpoint. I think also from an education standpoint, is distance swimmers are fast these days. Yeah. Um, you look at what it's going to take to medal in, in those events. Um, 
they're fast. And, and this notion that distance swimmers is slow and monotonous and you just have to go back and forth more than other people is, is just not true anymore. So, so sort of from an education standpoint, that type of thing. And, and we used to have a, a culture, um, the animal lane culture, where distance swimmers were um, feared and revered, I think. Um, and somehow we've gotten away from that, and, and distance swimmers are now just crazy or something like that, but the, the best of them. Um, and and I, I think we need to, to, to give them their, their due respect. And, and I will say, um, people are free to disagree with me, you know, certainly a 50 swimmer can work just as hard as a, as a miler, and I'm not taking that away from them. We just have to work differently, and, and I think that that needs to be acknowledged and that the the hard work that a 50 swimmer does and the hard work that a miler, it's hard is still hard. So I think that if we could bundle all that together, that, that would help. Um, that, that being said, um, it's hard work. And to be an elite level distance swimmer is hard work. And it takes a long period of time. And it takes several setbacks in all probability. And um, that's, the, that's the reality. And let's not try and sugarcoat it. Okay. Uh, I want to circle back on something you said when you mentioned that the you know distance swimmers are fast now, and when we say that we're talking like even the open water swimmers like it used to be a a, a time when if you couldn't break fifteen minutes as a male um, but were an open water swimmer, you could be a relatively successful that's not the case anymore no all all of the um male Open water swimmers are sub 15 minute milers, all the, all the top ones. And they're, most of them are probably sub 348, 400 swimmers. And then the girls are sub 16 minute milers and sub 408, 400 swimmers. So, yeah, I mean, the, the open water swimmers fit that, that category too. And anybody who's getting their open water swimmers prepared, uh, make sure you're doing your speed work along with it. Yeah, uh, because when open water, and Bryce could just talk for hours on this, but when open water swimming kind of took off as a metal opportunity in the United States, you know, everybody was looking, literally looking for open water. We got to get them out in the lake or out there. And that may not be necessary. Yeah, the majority of our open water swimmers do more than almost all of their swimming in the pool. Um, probably time for a different podcast. I think the the open water racing is critical, the experience they gain there, and you can only gain that by, by racing repetitively. And that's a niche that the Europeans have captured and are way ahead of us. So yeah, you have to race open water, but the training can, can all be done in the pool. Yeah. I mean, I had an opportunity in the 90s to train uh, open water swimmer uh, Samantha Shabatar. And she she was doing like I think twenty five k's like some serious races, and I think she's still coaching in Egg Harbor now. She is, yeah. And I, one summer she stayed back in Pittsburgh for to train. She was taking some classes, and I was really nervous because open water swimming in the nineties in the United States in Pittsburgh was eh, you know not on the on the at the front of the line and I was really concerned about training her and she's like, don't worry. She's like, all of my races are my training. She's like, I'm coming here just to get sharp. 
Yeah. Well, just this past swimmer, you may or may not know, she did it around the island swim in I Atlantic heard. City. Yeah, she did it. So uh, great, great for her, and that's terrific. And and I, I don't want to offend any of our open water purists either. Um, there is open water that is serious, 70K, 30K, river, wildlife, <laughs> horrible conditions that people would say that is open water. Extreme open water. Extreme open water. The, the Olympic open water event is pretty sterile compared to that. I mean, there's a defined <laughs> temperature range. There's an enclosed course. It's only 10K. Um, so you know, some of the open water purists, let's, let's not object too much. There's right. there the, the, the extreme open water, and then there's the, the sterilized little bit of the uh, Olympic event. Okay. All right. Well, you got some time to talk about training? We'll try. Okay. So people who have listened to this podcast or had conversations with me in the past know that I've been fascinated the last decade over the death of the 100,000 uh, or the 100K training week. Where'd it go? Um, good question. I will preface it by saying that just because something is old doesn't mean it's bad. Just like just because something new doesn't mean it's good. I like to think that we've gotten smarter and more efficient. We train at a higher level, uh, more speed, as we were talking earlier, that you have to have that for the, for the distance events these days. And, and I think that you can get all that without the 100,000-yard week. That being said, I think there is a, a slice of the population that still could, should, would, benefit from 90,000 yard weeks. I know that uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I heard Dick Schulberg talking about how he had Fran Crippen do 10,000 yard weeks in a row or something like that. And I thought, well, if Fran can do it, Andrew, my son can certainly do it. So I took a naive 16 or 17 year old boy and had him do 100,000 yards for six or seven weeks in a row. Uh, first thing I will say is he had a lousy summer that summer. Second thing I will say is he was really good the next summer. Mm. So I think that there's some of that long-term thought planning perspective that um, maybe it's not so bad to, to do that with a, a slice of the population. I think you're right. Um, I have had this conversation with Coach Troy, and he kind of gave the same answer. He said, uh, Nobody does 100,000-meter training weeks anymore, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't. Right. And, and maybe, maybe 90 is the new 100. I don't mm -hmm. know. And uh, maybe the window of two or three years down the road is the, is the right way to, to look at it. I don't know that a, you know, 10 weeks of, of 90,000 meters is going to help you out in the next three weeks, but it, it, uh, it might two or three years down the road. Long-term planning. Long-term planning. Uh, so I, my original question I want to ask you is how your training methods have evolved since Delaware, but I don't, I think evolves probably a poor word. I would like to say how your curiosity has steered you down different paths and like your, just your current example of what Andrew did with that a uh, couple weeks in a row of hundred thousand yard training weeks. What kind of interesting experimental things have you tried that you didn't feel that you that you weren't comfortable doing whenever you were at Delaware? Uh, certainly, the greatest impact over the last, well, it's been seven years now, uh, was when I started working with Katie, Katie Ledecky, 
and um, seeing the speed that she had or the that she could generate or displayed um, really opened my eyes up to using that speed more readily, more consistently in a, in a training environment. Okay. And, and, and you know, touching on that more often. And a lot of people, they know, but I like to say, um, Katie may have been sort of trained at a, as a distance swimmer, but also in Rio, she anchored our sprint freestyle relay. Mm -hmm. So just because you're a distance swimmer doesn't mean you can't, can't swim on the end of those relays. But, but I think I, I really realized the value and the necessity of more speed work. And it, it's almost incumbent upon the coach to, to make sure that their program allows for that. And if all you're doing is pounding, 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 grinding, 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 um, it, it's probably hard to, to still have that speed element present. All right. Um, tangent, Katie Ledecky, I said it once before, greatest female swimmer ever? Uh, one and one A. I grew up in the Tracy Calkins era, so okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. You not can't gonna, do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put them both together and, and stay that way uh, for the time being. Okay, fair enough. Um, so in 1996, I was over in England for a swim clinic. It was a World Swim Clinic, and somehow me and my buddy coaches got put with the Australians for the weekend, okay? This is the old guy, Lori Lawrence and his crew. And in the 90s, the Australians were really kicking our butts in distance swimming, okay? And so we had the opportunity to talk with them about it and flat out ask them, is there any coach in the United States that worries you guys that, that could get this right? Who do you think they said? Um, the easy answer is John or Banchek, but I'm not sure you would have asked the question if that's who they said. That is who they said. Okay. Yep. That is who they said. And uh, do you think that's been borne out now? Do you think their concerns were legit? Not necessarily because of his production, but because of the influence? I, I think the influence is, is far greater than the production. And, and he produced the great ones, and, and there's, there's no doubt about that. But if you look at the influence that he's had among the, the coaching tree now, it, it's phenomenal. And he continues to have, and there, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. And um, I, I don't think John will say John got it right. I know one of the Australian coaches is quoted as saying at, at one point, I think it was Forbes Carlisle, I'm not sure, that um, he was going to tell you everything that he believed to be true about swimming, but please remember that half of it is wrong, and he just didn't know which half. <laughs> and, and that's the way I like to, to, to try and remember when I'm, I'm coaching on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, <laughs> half of what we're doing is wrong, and I don't know which half it is. <laughs> so you know, feel free to, to challenge what we're doing, and I think we're all better off if we, we remember that a little bit. Sure. Well, the 90s was an interesting time because – that was probably the transition, you know, going back to the 100,000-yard training week to, you know, maybe we have a more intense 85,000-yard you know, training week now. Um, but that was kind of the transition period. So what do you think worried the Australians? What do you think they were looking at and saying uh, he found that out? I, I, I couldn't even answer that. I don't know what, what they would have known. Um, 
You know, John, the magic behind John Urbanchek, don't tell anybody, is that John's wife is a brilliant PhD physiologist. <laughs> and John will be the first one to tell you that uh, she developed the, the training systems and had more influence than he had. He just uh, sort of rolled it out there and, and executed it. So maybe they were afraid of uh, Mel Urbanchek, John's <laughs> wife. Well, I know one of the things they talked about whenever we were, we were writing down sets um, was that Grant Hackett was one of his prime sets was 15100 freestyles on two minutes. And every one of us, every American at the table was just blown away. Like, why would you give somebody that fast that much rest? You know, I think that that depends on your athlete. And obviously, I've never worked with, with Grant Hackett, and that would have been a pleasure. Um, I, I think you have to give them as much to a point, I'm going to contradict myself, as much rest as they need to swim at the level that they need to swim at. And that goes not only within the set, but within the week and within the season that, that they need to do that. Um, Katie, for instance, responded very well to 15 or 20 seconds rest. So, so much of our work was, was built around that time frame. Um, if I gave her a minute rest, she would either go slower or no faster. And the set that she was horrible at, and she will admit to, is something like six 100s on eight minutes. Um, you know, she just got worse. Right. So while I bet you there's a purist that would say you have to do that work, um, I, I found that I, I set up the week, the season, the set, so she could swim at the highest level, or the desired level for, for that particular practice. On, on the other hand, Andrew, my son, um, he was good on five seconds rest. Anything more than 10 seconds rest was, was detrimental in some ways, I think. And, and we've also seen the athletes that I'm sure flourish on, on three minutes rest or five minutes rest yeah. or whatever it is. All right. Um, so we're gonna, I'm going to drop into the weeds a little bit and start talking about the, the color system. So whenever we start talking about pace times held, amount of rest that an athlete got, how did you differentiate for somebody like Katie between red and blue? Um, that was a conversation that John Urbanchik and I had several times. And John originally started the discussions with girls can't do blue. He's, he's, never had, he's never had a girl that could do blue. The whole physiological basis of his system was, was male college, which is what he, he coached for, for decades and girls couldn't do blue. And then um, I would tell him some of the work that Katie was doing, and he said, well, she's the first of a kind that can even, <laughs> even approach and repeatedly actually excel at that level. Um, on the other hand, I think his original comment is maybe more true for the majority of our female athletes that that's very, especially the young ones that I work with at the high school level, blue is, is unreasonable from a performance standpoint. Okay. Um, so if you were, if you were back training, a, you know, a senior, a boy, a senior in high school, 400, 800, 1500 boy, and you wanted to do some red work with him and some blue work with him in that week, what would an example set of each be? Something that you use like a go-to or a favorite? You know, my, my go-to set is why I laughed a little bit when you mentioned uh, the Grant Hackett set. My go-to set is 3100s. And 3100s can be spun 35 different ways. And I probably have spun 34 of those. And when somebody has the idea for the 35th, please let me know. 
you know, you, you can do it all red, you can do three easy, one blue, um, you can do six pink, six red, 12 blue, I mean, whatever, whatever is yep. along the way. And I, I've probably tried every way. I, I really believe that from a physiological standpoint, you only need about five or six different workouts. And if you could roll them out and get the athlete to fully embrace them, uh, you, you'd have great performance. But I know that the, the athlete would get bored as they should, and I would sure. get bored also. So we want to tinker around the edges a little bit. And sometimes we really mix it up and might do 125s instead of 100, <laughs> something crazy like that. Um, so you don't, it sounds like you don't delve too much into purple green territory? No, I, I, I really don't. Um, people have, have gone into all sorts of things beyond uh, blue. I remember that when Frank Bush was out uh, visiting our club one time, and we have a, a large number of very accomplished coaches, certainly at the senior level and the age group level. But anyway, we were going around the room, and he said, uh, what, what three things um, could you not live with in your, in your training program? And time got short, so he said, what two things could you, could you not live with in your training program? And, and lots of coaches had much better replies than I had, but uh, my reply was pink and red. So if, if you're gonna give me uh, two areas that I can, can work in, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work in the pink and red. Uh, white is valuable, blue is valuable, but the, the meat and potatoes is, is right there in, in pink and red and let's swim there and let's go there often and let's go there consistently and let's go there over a long period of time. Okay. What did, uh, what did I forget to ask you? Uh, what I'm gonna be doing 10 years from now. Okay, what is that? I have no idea. <laughs> Um, I, I'm having fun what I'm doing now, and I, I think all of us in this sport hope that we can keep doing it for many years to come. Okay. All right. Well, I hope at some opportunity between now and June that we get to sit down and talk about this some more as the, the program that has been set in motion begins to develop. Great. And uh, there are a lot of really smart people that um, are really good problem solvers and a lot of heads together are pretty good. All right. Thanks for your time today. All right. Thank you, Dan. Thanks again to Bruce for being so generous with his time. And thank you for listening to KickSet. Make sure you are a subscriber so every new episode shows up in your feed. And while you're subscribing, make sure that you give us a rating. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks for listening to KickSet with USA Swimming. Check out www.usaswimming.org slash kickset for more episodes and add kickset to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes.